Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. How's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators kind of let you know what we've been playing recently. And speaking of that, on this episode are Dice and Dragons, Meeple and the Moose, The Meeple Dungeon, Board Game Community Show, Omni Gamers Club, Board Game Hot Takes, The Bridge City Board Gamers Community and Cardboard Conjecture. And I have to say it, but please take the time to check out the show notes and the links to the cast. And, uh, of course, enjoy the episode. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dice and Dragons. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram at Dice and Dragons, and on Twitter at Dice and Dragon. And what is it today, Julie? It's What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. Now, for a couple of reasons, I'm not sure if this is going to be coming out right before the video is released, but it will definitely be coming out right around the time the video is released. We were playing Power Rangers, the deck building game. This is the Omega Forever expansion, and it is published by Renegade Game Studios. This specific expansion was only designed by T.C. Petty III. Now, I think we actually have a lot more to say about this expansion than when we were talking about Zeo, because, boy, does this uh, change some things up in the game. Well, yeah, this makes you want to play the villain and not n- not the rangers because the villains really feel much, much more uh, powered up. I mean, it really wasn't much fun when I played against you. Uh, and I can see why you might not have had as much fun when I had the, the villains because, honestly, you don't really have time to build up enough with the rangers fast enough before... The villains just, just you know, they just whack and whack and whack and whack, and it, it's like, at one point I said, okay, just kill me already and put me out of my misery because I, I, he kept, you know, tearing me down a little bit more, tearing me down a little bit more, tearing me down a little bit more, and until, slowing you down at the same time, which was the big issue. Yeah, well, I mean, the last time with those stupid stuns, half my deck was stuns. I couldn't get anything going anywhere. I didn't have any of the cards that would allow me to call those cards from my deck. All I kept pulling was, you know, more stun, more stun, which basically made me, like, just die a slow, painful, excruciatingly painful death. And when you were playing as Garrison Vox, you whacked me in 24 minutes. So that At was least the I game was ever. efficient hey, and took you, you out quickly. You picked the best villain in the game. Probably the best character from the entire set. And I'm going to back Julie up on this. The villains are awesome. If you're looking to have great villain characters in the game, these so far are my favorite villains. They're cool. They do lots of fun stuff. I think that for the villains, this is almost an essential expansion if you love this deck building game. That being said, the Rangers, as you know, a 1v1 heads up game, I thought the Rangers were probably the weakest that we've seen so far. And yeah. we both agreed, and a little bit spoilers for our review, that we will not be playing these Rangers 1v1 heads up against 
the villains from this expansion set again. Just wasn't good. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't potential for the Rangers to do lots of cool stuff. Their Zords are cool. The Fusion Zords are cool. It just really felt like if you do not have two players working together, you're not necessarily going to be able to take advantage the way that you would like. It definitely feels like this expansion was primarily designed with four characters, well, four players in mind, or at least a 2v1 scenario. Yeah, but I mean, we haven't played any of them as as two play as more than two players, so it's it's a little hard to tell, as you say. No, it's hard to tell. It's just more like the fusion zords, the fact that they can fuse with other zords to enhance zords, and then yeah, zords it just seems cheaper. Too complicated for me. I never was able to build it up. It t- it's it's not as easy as what comes out for the villains. So I don't know. I no, I agree with you. It's hundred percent not as easy. That's why you need that extra discount from having the other player that you can buy another Zord for cheaper once they turn to their Ranger side. So it's just some stuff like that that I felt really makes it so that this expansion does not shine at that one V one level. Yeah. Because the villains at least the two that we played were incredibly lopsided. I do think that there was maybe one ranger that would have been able to deal with the villains a little bit better, mainly because of uh, her ability, which is Trini. Uh, The yellow ranger does get some healing from a card that normally deals some damage, so she may have been able to better resist the villains, but the onslaught that you were putting up with Garrison Vox and all of the stunning I was doing with Dane is just, just crazy. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, we haven't played her in a while. I don't know if she's strong enough. Uh, or it's just that they made just made the villains, you know, that much more. I don't know. We'd have to we'd have to see. Uh, I, you know, I've played enough Power Rangers for a little bit, though. Yes, the goal was to speed up the game, and the game was definitely sped up with this expansion. Just once again, something that we've complained about since the first game, second game, we're now in this expansion is balance. We do have the RPM Getting Gear expansion, which we will be reviewing. Uh, probably in the near future, sometime before the end of the year, it will definitely be getting back to the table. But we're going to be stepping away from this deck building game for a little bit as we get through some other pretty cool review copies that we got. I mean, uh, some stuff that we've been really excited about has finally arrived. So time to take a break from this stuff, but you'll definitely hear our thoughts on the other expansion too. Yep. So on that note, we're going to remind you to keep playing games. Hello, my name is Alex and I write board game reviews over at Meeplelemoose.com and I'm here to talk to you today about the game I played this week for which we're playing Wednesday. This week I only played one game, Pillars of the Earth by Michael Rennick and Stefan Stadler uh, based on the 1989 novel of the same, same name written by Ken Foylet. For those who haven't heard of this game before, in the Pillars of the Earth, players assume the role of builders working to construct a cathedral and earning victory points based on the resources and labor they commit to the project. The main mechanism of the Pillars of the Earth is worker placement, but it has a bit of a unique hook. Players have three master builder pawns that all get tossed into a bag, and then one by one, the first player will pull pawns from a bag. The player whose pawn is pulled from the bag has a choice. They can either place their pawn onto one of the worker's placement action spaces and pay the cost or pass. Whether they place or pass, the cost to place pawns is then reduced by one and the next pawn is drawn. This repeats until all the pawns have been removed from the bag and then the players who pass take turns moving their pawns out onto the board for free. 
I should mention, before the pawn placement phase, each round begins with a draft. Seven cards depicting resources are divvied out to players, and each card requires you commit workers to them, meaning you can't just always choose the card that gives you the most resources, you have to have enough workers to pick the cards. Sometimes you'll desperately want both stone and wood, so you might opt to take the cheaper cards first. Anyways, once the resource cards have been distributed the player and the player pawns all placed, all the actions resume in numerical order, moving clockwise around the board. There is an event that triggers, and then there is an associated action space that protects the player from the effects of that event. There are some special visitors who will bestow persistent benefits to the players who select them, a space to just earn points, a place to evade taxes, a space to recruit builders, a resource market, and finally, capping off the round, an opportunity, an opportunity to convert the resources you have acquired into victory points. After 6 rounds, the player who has earned the most victory points is the winner. In some ways, The Pillars of the Earth is unique and interesting, and in other ways, it feels very 2006. The main hook of the game, the way the actions are distributed by pulling pawns out of the bag, was neat and interesting. I really enjoyed it. It can be both a blessing and a curse to be the first pawn pulled out of that bag. On one hand, you get the first pick of any space on the board. On the other hand, you'll pay dearly for that privilege. Should you feel strapped for cash and two of your three pawns come out early, suddenly your fortunes twist from getting first crack of the board to going absolutely last. Now the components of the Pillars of the Earth are pretty good. The mini cards are adequate, the resource cubes are slightly larger than average, and each player gets a handful of human-shaped meeples in their color. The standout component actually is the main board. While it's a standard size, it was beautifully illustrated. Uh, another component that I want to highlight is the six cathedral blocks. At the start of every round, you'll add one block to the cathedral, representing the progress players are making in building this grand project. I do feel a bit of dissonance with this aspect, however, no matter how much or how little players contribute, the building will still get built. It can serve as a round marker, but the numbered craftsman cards do a better job conveying the information. Ultimately, the cathedral is whimsical, but pointless. I almost feel like the cathedral could be built, should be built in stages according to the sum of all the players' points, kinda like a semi-co-op game. Perhaps there could be a way to end the game early, if all the resources needed for the church have been completed, then the game should end there. I'm just speculating, but I, I do like games that have a project that all players contribute to, such as Twa by Sebastian Durgin, Xavier Georges, and Elaine Orban, or Kalis by William Atia. Playing and teaching the Pillars of the Earth is straightforward. The rulebook is only 8 pages long and covers all the actions nicely. We did feel the lack of an appendix detailing all the cards when we came against an ambiguity, like player produces one additional stone each round. Does that mean the player needs to produce at least one stone for this power to trigger? It turns out, no. It's a minor complaint, but I dislike it when ambiguity on a card text forces us to pause our game and consult the BGG forums. If there's one aspect that makes me feel like The Pillars of the Earth is an older game, it's how the game chooses to use randomness. There's an event each round that gets revealed after all the players place their pawns for the round. One of the spaces available is to protect yourself from that impending event, but you don't get to know what that event is going to be, so placing a pawn in that spot to protect yourself is just a crapshoot. It's a bit odd, and along the same lines, each round the king will demand taxes. Halfway through the complete action phase, the start player will roll a die, and all players need to pay between 2 and 5 cold depending on that die roll, unless you happen to place a pawn in the king's court and then you're exempt from this requirement. 
Again, not knowing what risks you're mitigating feels very 2006. I tried to put myself back in the year 2007, when most people would have played the Pillars of the Earth for the first time. I suspect back then, the novelties of the worker placement mechanic would have lit some worlds on fire. I find myself wishing that this mechanic was tied to a more interesting game, because beyond pulling the workers from the bag mechanic, the rest of the game is fairly dull, a somewhat generic convert resources into victory points affair. As the game rounds go on, the craftsmen that become available are the same ones that you already have, just better. The stonemason that you have at the beginning of the game needs two stone to convert to one point. Meanwhile, the stonemason that you can buy at the end of the game will convert a single stone into two points. Now, you're not able to just hoard resources all game and wait for those final craftsmen to show up, which makes the Pillars of the Earth feel less strategic and more tactical. The Pillars of the Earth is not an engine building game, and you can never guarantee your income or resource production. Instead, you'll need to squeeze the most value from the goods and craftsmen that become available to you in, in order to come out ahead. In the end, The Pillars of the Earth was a fine game to play. We had fun for the two hours it took us to learn and play, but when we were finished, we all agreed that we wouldn't choose to come back to it. Compared to all the games that we own and want to return to, The Pillars of the Earth is a bit of a relic of the past. It invoked similar feelings of Kalos, but without the brutality of the Provost. I'm glad I played The Pillars of the Earth, but it's not a game I'll be clamoring to return to. If I'm thirsty for a worker placement game, I'd much sooner return to Agricola by Uwe Rosenberg or Viticulture by Jamie Stegmaier and Alan Stone. And if I feel the desire to just convert cubes into points, I would much sooner play Century Spice Road by Emerson Masucci or Stone Age by Bernard Brunhofer. And that's all I played this week. If you want to read more of my board game reviews, you can find them over at MeepleTheMoose.com. You can follow me on Twitter at MooseEeple or on Instagram at MeepleTheMoose. Have a happy Wednesday. Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. And we have one game to talk about this week. What game is that, Anna Marie? That game is The Age of Atlantis, designed by Daniel Aronson and Nick Tompkins, art by Justin Spice, and published by Eldorado Games. Yes, The Age of Atlantis. This is a game we played for the first time down at Shucks in Vancouver about three weeks ago or whatever that was. And we have since found our own copy of Age of Atlantis. It arrived about a week ago, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this game is pretty sweet. We're pretty excited to have it and play it. Um, I'm just going to read a little blurb off the back of the box here about... Uh, the theme of what's going on here. The Age of Atlantis is a competitive engine-building civilization game. You are the leader of a noble house and must prove your prove to Poseidon that your house deserves to rule the city. Grow your house's population, discover new technologies and cultures, and defend the city, all while appeasing Poseidon and preventing his mighty flood. Yes. Yes. So this is a this is a pretty wildly cool game. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's so it's um, first off it's Atlantis, which is just yes. cool on its own. Yeah, so the board is like a big, uh, round, kind of pizza-shaped board. It's kind of divided into pizza slices, sort of. And then the slices are divided um, Yeah, it's kind of, if anyone's played, um, what's that, uh, Castle Panic? Yeah. It's it's similar to Castle Panic, but just like a much more uh, mature theme going on here. Yeah. Where you are constantly being invaded by like hordes of enemies coming in from all different directions, which are dictated in various ways. 
and you have your own set of goals. So this is asymmetrical, although each each um, house is similar to yeah, each you, other. Yeah, you've got some that are that everyone has the same um, actions, the same things yeah, that you the, do, like same basics. Yes. And then there's like one thing in particular that your noble does differently yeah, than than everybody else. Or whatever. Yeah, so you yeah. can kind of lean into that to gain, you know, yeah. gain your position and things like that. Yeah, and so you, yeah, you each have your own yeah house, and you're kind of just doing your own thing. But at the same time, you're kind of working together in a way where you're like, it, it can be to your advantage to want to help out somebody that's yeah, about to get if, run over. If the Greeks and Romans are advancing, uh, even if it's not in an area that's particularly beneficial to you, you might want to go destroy them. Mm-hmm. Um, like for, I did. Yeah. I remember I went and just pulled off one of these enormous slayings of like, like everybody six around you, groups of invaders all in, yeah. one, uh, in one turn. And it helped you because you got to get you get points for each person that you destroy. That. Even though they weren't directly affecting any of my infrastructure or anything. Right. It really had no bearing on me except for it was totally worth my while to go slay them and and take the points. Yeah, if if he hadn't done that and we weren't able to, you know, um, defeat the hordes before they got to, you know, the right, uh, like to the inner city. Yeah, because then, it, yeah, we should explain that in the, in the middle of the board, the middle of the pizza is Atlantis, this Atlantis like, the, like the main city, yeah. and then toward everything beyond that, out towards the edge of the board is kind of like more and more outskirty. Yeah, and then if they ever breach that city wall, then Poseidon floods that section. Yes, of the map, including any and all building structures that may have been built there by you, me, anybody on the yeah. board gets wiped off the board, and that could be like catastrophic for what you're trying to do because you spend a lot of turns and actions like. Uh, planning to build these things yeah. and then you you need to have a certain thing built in order to be able to do something else and you have a lot Gaining of things going resources on. and, and yeah. putting other things out and uh, one thing that's really neat about the core like in the city portion um you have you have your basically peasants like your people who inhabit the city mm-hmm. and the only people who can go outside of the city walls into the next sections are atlanteans yeah. so you have to like upgrade your people yeah which are all it. represented by really cool dye yeah yeah and so they have like the drama face masks yeah yeah exactly what you're saying where the the dye represent your workers yes um and your workers like if it has a single face up um you can place it out and you get one free action and then you can always spin your dice down to uh use additional actions but tires them out and then like a sad face it means that that worker is now tired and same like you were saying in the center of the board, you're able to train up your die to become Atlanteans and like warriors where yeah. they get swords attached to them. And you can then take them out into the outside, outside the, city, the walls. city wall and start doing things. You're for like you defending um, yeah. and you can just go farther because you've you've gained that ability of being an Atlantean and yeah, you have special cool. I love uh, training. Yeah. I love how that works where you you can have up to two faces. And if you have two faces, that's great because you can spin it down twice. Yeah. So you can have potentially three turns. Right. Because you actions. get one. As soon as you play a die out, you get a free turn. Yeah. And then if you decide to spin it down, you can. You get and another then action. Get, like more tired and more tired as you spin them down. Really cool mechanism. I really, yeah. really And then this. if they're exhausted, then at the end, like in the cleanup phase, then you might lose like prestige or, yep. you know, I can't remember what the track is called, but you would lose kind of something like that. And so it's a balancing act with, 
you know, do I spin all my guys down or do I kind of maybe spin one down and leave right. my other ones where they are? There's so much planning you have to do. Yeah. It's cool. And, and the way this game works is that there's a, a three, four, um, how many different? Four uh, different factions. Up to four. No, not the faction, oh. but the actual like phases of the game. Three. three. Yeah. Where there's three like generations sort of, I think. I forget what it's called. Either way, it doesn't matter. There's three parts to the game, and each one, you, you move from one to the other after a certain amount of things have been triggered in that era, I believe yes, they're called. Yes, era, yeah. In the eras, there's three eras. And in the first era of, era of the game, which is basically the first round, it, it can be short or long. It depends. It depends on who does what and when and how quickly. Yes. Because there's all these different things that are required for somebody to have done. I could have done all five of them. Yep. And I forget how many. I think there's like six or eight in each era and a certain amount have to be done and, and completed and then it forces you to move to the next yeah. era. And I think it changes like in era one you need this many in era yeah. two you need this many. Yeah it's really cool how it works because it can be like if no one's doing those things then the round just kind of prolongs but well, if everyone just starts steamrolling towards <laughs> things the game can really roll oh, like quickly. Amp, amps up and when you get yeah. close to the end you're like okay I need I can do all of this in the next the next round and And then then the next round might not come (laughs) (laughs) because then all of a sudden you had like two of the eight things that you needed but then everybody else got the other six things and game over yep so oh it's good it's very good good, very good game um and it's got mechs and stuff in it so like this is they call them myths Myths, in this game but it's that's mechanical yeah uh well mechs yeah sort of but yeah really cool game highly recommend this one we went out and bought it as soon as we got back from shucks yes and uh yeah we're going to be doing a review of that in the next couple of weeks on our podcast the meeple dungeon podcast so, so it'll check be that out it'll be a little bit be more succinct a little yes. bit more it'll explanation in, more, in uh, depth but in uh depth, but <laughs> yes it's it's going to be a good review on that one and uh we just did a review of my father's work yeah on the latest episode and we are currently also just starting to play 3000 scoundrels which we're going to be doing a review of as well in our next episode and that's from uh cory kanitska and unexpected games Mm -hmm. so that's it for this week and we'll see you next week cheers see ya Hi, it's Riley from the Board Game Community Show, a weekly podcast where I interview people throughout the board game community and have very casual conversations. I'm back for another What You've Been Playing Wednesday, excited to talk about the games I've been playing. I got to play a lot of games this weekend. We went to my in-laws and spent the whole weekend gaming. I'll breeze through a few of them and then focus on one at the end. The Quacks of Quidlinburg, we have the upgraded bits. It is always fun to do this fun little random bag builder. Then we taught them patchwork and we split into teams and just played together. I didn't think that would work very well, but it was great. A little polyomino quilt making game. Corridor, a classic, trying to move your pawn from one end to the other. Kind of a meaner game than I remember as you're blocking people and sometimes people feel a little singled out. Probably the biggest highlight for my in-laws was Lords of Waterdeep. We taught that to them and they absolutely loved it, which it's a favorite of ours too. It's so great to teach really basic worker placements, but there's enough choice and fun stuff going on in it that it's entertaining. Probably the worst experience of the week was One Deck Dungeon, and that's because it took us three hours to play through it. And I know that it's not that long of a game, but we had so many distractions. We forgot some rules. We A couple of us were learning it. 
and it just did not go very well. We were all having a lot of fun though for the first 90 minutes, but then it just got to the point where we're like, okay, we're ready to be done. Cascadia, always a classic. We love that. Every We showed them it. They bought their own copy, so I didn't even have to bring my copy up there. And then finally, I got up, and I knew that my wife and my sister-in-law wouldn't want to play this game, but my brother-in-law had woken up early too, and so we learned Age of Galaxy, which is in this tiny, tiny box. It's from Ice Makes, designer Jeffrey CCH, artist Samuel Horowitz, and Roxy Dye. And it is such a treat of a game. It's a small box. It's even smaller than I expected, but it's got little plastic ships in there. You've got cubes, cards. All of the cards have unique art on them, really cool looking alien sci-fi stuff going on. It's this tiny packaging for this big 4X experience. And over the course of five rounds, you're doing different things and playing cards in the beginning, you have seven cards, and those seven cards are your cards for the entire game. They are multi-use, so you can use them to be your main faction, which gives you one benefit. You could use them for a temporary bonus. You could use them to colonize a planet that you normally wouldn't be able to if it matches the icons. You'd be able to discard it for a one-time bonus where it gives you a reward, like a currency or something, or a victory point, a prestige point. Or you can use it to become your true ideology. And what that does is gives you end game scoring based on what the ideology icon is. My brother-in-law, he was not loving it at first. The rules seemed kind of confusing for him. But as we started playing, he started to get it a lot more quickly. And it was a really, really tight game in the end. We were 20 and 20. I won just because of the tiebreaker condition. But there's so many cool decisions, so many different ways to play it. You can play a different combination. You can only have three main factions out. And once those are out, you can't replace them. So that's what you're stuck with. But they all do different things and they combine and can make really different strategies. From what I hear, some people can score a lot higher. I've played it twice. I went and played it solo when I got home because I was so excited about this game. The solo had some rough things like... You're just flipping over a card and then they colonize the planet that it has the icon for. And then you do an action based on the ideology that the card has. And sometimes those did absolutely nothing. And I won very easily. But the game has kind of a... Well, one of the first stretch goals of the Kickstarter was that they were going to do a three scenario campaign and they all give you kind of different setups, different goals, a target score. And that to me seems like an even better experience than what I played. And when what I played, I think honestly was probably just bad luck of drawing cards for the Automa. The game is probably great solo most of the time and a challenge. It just so happened to draw cards that it couldn't colonize because they weren't out on the board at all, or I had already taken them. So there you have it, Age of Galaxy, super quick game and pretty cheap too for what it is. I got it for 18 bucks, I think, and that's not, not bad at all. And that's what I've been playing. You can check out the Board Game Community Show, new episodes every Friday. And until next time, keep nerding out.
This is Daniel Winter from Board Game Feast and the Omni Gamers Club podcast. Wanted to talk today about one of my new favorite Halloween games. That is Ghosts Love Candy 2. 2 as in T-O-O. This is a re-implementation of an older game, Ghosts Love Candy. It came out in 2016. I believe it was a Kickstarter game. I wasn't familiar with that one and this arrived uh, unexpectedly. <laughs> Haunted my doorstep and it was quite a pleasant surprise. So this is designed and illustrated by Danny Devine, who you may know from Agropolis and Sprawlopolis. And this new edition is published by 25th Century Games. So in this game, you're going to have a neighborhood of children uh, in, in a line that all will be accumulating candy. And you are each playing ghosts trying to steal that candy. So each player will have a hand of cards numbered one through nine that you'll be playing one per round in a closed bid. So you're revealing these cards simultaneously. Person with the highest number gets to go first and choose which child they're going to scare and screaming into the night and, and take their candy. The trick being here that each child has a special effect. There's over 100 children in this game to, to, to scare and each one has a, a slight trick that will let you manipulate the board state or steal candy from other players or some fun little mini games and the way they interact and bounce off of each other is really the core joy here you're balancing these abilities with each child's scare value that is how resilient they are to being frightened the more cards that are on that child the more likely they will hit their tolerance in which case they generally will enter your collection and actually be worth negative points no one wants to to own up to having made that kid soil themselves <laughs> uh but there again there are there are some fun ways that maybe make those kids worth more points or make force them onto other players and this game goes up to six players so you really have that that fantastic reveal of, of, of everyone flipping over their cards simultaneously and trying to figure out who goes first as little fiddly if there's a tiebreaker you have to basically have to flip another card to to see who has the higher number to, to break that tie but generally this game flows really quickly uh you've got a great fantastic replayability with the ways that all the the cards interact with each other and yeah got a great little family experience that's great for the halloween season it's easy to teach and great chaotic fun so I've been Daniel from the Omni Gamers Club podcast. You can check us out where we do deep dives into a particular game each episode, but we don't discriminate. We alternate between video games, board games, and everything in between. Thanks for listening. Hey there, this is Tim from the Board Game Hot Takes podcast, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. This week, I'm going to talk about two games that I've had a chance to play quite a bit this last week, and they are both dice-based push-your-luck games. The first is a new game by Reiner Knizia called Gang of Dice. Uh, this game, I think, is expected to be published later this year. It is up on Board Game Arena in alpha right now. So it should be up on beta pretty soon. You'll have a chance to play it on Board Game Arena and hopefully 
a chance to pick it up in stores if you'd like to. This is a very simple push your luck game. Essentially, everybody starts with a bunch of dice, maybe 25, and uh, there's going to be a card that gets flipped over in each of the 12 rounds. And each of these cards is going to have a bust effect that could happen. So these are normal six-sided dies, except for the number six is replaced with what looks like a little gangster, and the gangster is basically a null. It doesn't do anything at all. What's going to happen is that at the beginning of each round, one of these cards is going to be flipped up, and it will give you an effect that would cause it to bust. It might say, have uh, three equal dice. And then in turn order, each person is going to be able to pick as many dice as they want from their supply that they want to roll that turn, and they can roll it. And they can do it Yahtzee style where they can re-roll the, the dice if they're not happy with their first or second result. But then they have to accept their third result. Now, some of these cards allow you to re-roll and try not to bust uh, with all three rolls. But some of them will tell you that as soon as you meet the condition to bust, then it's going to happen immediately. So there's different levels of push your luck with these cards. And uh, basically, whoever manages to not bust but have the highest pip count on all of the dice that they rolled in that round is going to win. And they're going to win all of the dice that all of the other players rolled, including themselves. And the, the entire uh, point of this game is to end up with the most dice in your pool. Dice are hidden behind a screen, so you can't keep exact count of how many dice the other players have. And so it's a little bit of a push your luck to say, well, do, am I winning here? Should I push my luck a little bit further? Or do I really need to win this one? You don't have that information unless you're a dice counter. But um, in any case, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, a, it's very simple, uh, but it results in some fun decisions about how many dice do I want to add here because it might raise my risk of, of busting. Uh, but I need to you know, push a little bit harder to make sure that I can beat this other person. And, um, you know, fun, quick, light uh, dice rolling game. The other game that I've been playing a lot this week is a classic 1980 game called Can't Stop. And this was designed by Sid Saxon. This is a game I grew up with. And it is also a dice push your luck game. Uh, this, this game is a little different, though. It does have a board. And basically what it's got is it's got the numbers 2 through 12 printed on the board. On your turn, you're going to take four dice and you're going to roll them. And you're going to take any two combinations of those dice and put a marker on one of these columns underneath those specific numbers. So let's say that I roll two twos and a three and a seven. What I could do is just take the two twos and make them into a four, take the three and seven mark, put them into a 10. And then I would put a marker, one of my three markers on those two columns. Now I'll re I can keep rolling as many times as I want to. The next time I roll, I will have another combination of, of dice and uh, I've got one more marker to play. So it's pretty safe at this point, right? And maybe the next one I, I place a marker out on the six. But now this is where it gets interesting because if I roll these four dice again and I don't have the two, the six, or the 10, which are the three that I have my markers on, I bust. But if I do have one of them, I get to move my marker up that column. The the more likely uh, dice odds that you're going to hit, of course, seven being the highest, have the tallest column. So, of course, you would want to pick seven, but you're going to have to have the most hits on that one versus, for example, the two or the 12, where you only have to get three of them in order to win the column. Once you get to the top of one of these columns of numbers, you take control of it. Everyone else that has a marker in that column gets knocked off. And if you win three of the columns, you win the game. Um, now, the, the reason it's push your luck is that if you, you know, move up and then you stop rolling, you leave a marker there for until the next round. 
But then somebody else could come in there and start rolling that number and they may surpass you and take over that column and knock you off. Uh, this is It feels very similar to Gang of Dice. And the reason I wanted to mention both of them today is that Gang of Dice is a new game. It's fun. It's quick. But I've been playing a lot of Can't Stop on Board Game Arena as well. As I mentioned, I, I did grow up with it, but it's on Board Game Arena right now. I had a chance to play it. And I have to say that I think Can't Stop is still the better game. It's a classic, but it results in you know, bigger, more fun, exciting moments, more tricky pusher luck uh, decisions to make. And I think of the two, I would pick this. So I would say, you know, if you're interested in this type of light, fun, pusher luck game, Gang of Dice is great, but you don't need to wait for it. If you're in the mood for that type of game, pick up Can't Stop. You can pick it up at, you know, probably almost any retailer uh, or online retailer. And you can also play that on Board Game Arena right now. Super fun game, want a quick, fun, light party style game with a little bit of strategy in it. Check out Can't Stop by Sid Saxon. But if you want something that's a little bit more modern, you like Reiner Knizia's designs, or you want something that's got a little bit of theme paste on, in this case, you're a mob boss trying to get the most gang, the most, uh, gang members to join your side, and these are represented by the dice, then you could check out Gang of Dice. Both super fun games, though. Until next week, take care, everybody. Hey everybody, Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And speaking of Bridge City Board Gamers, let's go to the community page on Facebook and the thread What You've Been Playing Wednesday and uh, let's see what the community has been playing. So uh, let's start off with Hands, um, Dice Miner, The Quest for El Dorado, Isle of Cats, and uh, oh, sorry, Isle of Cats, Explore and Draw. Uh, I've not ever played Dice Miner, but the Quest for El Dorado I've played, and it's it's fun. It's a deck-building race, which is really cool. And uh, the maps, there's so much variability. It's such a fun game. Uh, Isle of Cats, Explore, and Draw, I have not done the read and write, but I did have fun with the Polyomino uh, big box game that this is based on, so cool. Uh, Brad, Coloma, Dune Imperium, Ghost Stories, and... Zedpocalypse. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, Coloma, I've played. It's awesome. It's fun. The theme is fantastic. Uh, Dune Imperium. Uh, it's that's a, a still a hot game. Um, the uh, that hybrid uh, worker placement deck builder, and it's also designed by the uh, the production team company that gave you or that gives you Clank and Clank in Space. Uh, Ghost Stories I own and is probably the most difficult solo game that you can play. Even a cooperative uh, a play uh, is so difficult. I think the the uh, the badge of honor is to state that you have won playing Ghost Stories. Uh, Zedpocalypse I've never played before, so not sure. I'm not a big zombie guy. But uh, I don't know that, I mean, I don't have a lot of zombie games. It's not that I don't like it, but, you know, I don't have a lot. Uh, Lane, uh, too much Marvel uh, snaps, I think, to play real board games. Um, I think that's the new, uh, the new di digital game that's out there. I don't want to get compelled because, you know, the rabbit hole and everything. Scott, uh, a few games of Marvel Champions. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. 
let's see. A couple of sessions of D&D. Yes, I have a session tonight also. Yay. Tome of Annihilation. And uh, yeah, I think there's going to be some Annihilation. They're in the Tome now. Time for some time for them to roll up some backup characters. Uh, continuing here, Weather Machine. Oh man, I want to try that one so so bad. Azul, fantastic abstracty kind of game. Newsfjord is a uh, is a uh, uh, Uwe Rosenberg that I haven't played that I'd love to play. And Castles of Burgundy, my favorite Steffenfeld game. Um, these are all online via various platforms, Scott says. So, wow. You know, playing online is awesome, but I, there's, so much, there's so much charge that I get out of playing face-to-face. And speaking of, uh, Dave, um, who, uh, David who, and Jordan, who often, but this is just Dave, uh, Gamer's Garage on Wednesday, and Red Cathedral, we played that one. That's an awesome game. And uh, you, uh, yeah, if you're, you should check it out if you're into um, some really good euros and really cool decision making. Uh, Explorers and Dungeon Dice and Danger, and I believe they talked about uh, Dungeon Dice and Danger in the last. Um, um, I'm, I'm on what you've been playing Wednesday, so I'm trying to read ahead and getting myself distracted. But uh, yeah, Red Cathedral. Out of all those three, Red, Red Cathedral, I can totally back. Uh, Jason. Castles of Burgundy uh, and applying stickers to Everdale. I under, uh, I'm just guessing that because that's listed as an activity, it's a large activity, Everdale um, expansion maybe. Uh, Castles of Burgundy, as I said before, fantastic Stefan Feld game. Um, and it's finishing, oh, we're not finishing this off. Um, Ash played Small Worlds. Uh, fantastic days of wonder. I've not really gotten into it because my brain can't grok it. Um, but uh, maybe that, and that was a long time ago. Maybe I should come back to it with my with my brain having a little bit of a experiential wisdom re- gaming refit. <laughs> uh, w. Brent, reading and experimenting on different ways to achieve a well shuffled deck of cards. <laughs> okay, uh, that you know what that could be. Uh, in a math department thing in regards to randomization. <laughs> um, Marianne, she has been playing. I'm having a look. She got a picture here. I can't really make this out. It looks like a, uh, uh, well, it's not, it's definitely a area control esque um, military game because I'm seeing countries, I'm seeing uh, soldiers on a map, I'm seeing occupation kind of situations it looks really cool i'm trying to find clues as to what game this is um i'm at a loss i'm at a quite a loss but it looks fun (laughs) and uh so let's move on to garth castles of burgundy cascadia star trek frontiers jump drive architects of the west kingdom our family just got cascadia and are already it has been played seven times yeah Good thing you mentioned it because uh, that's one of my fave games of, uh, of late. It's one of those games that is fast to set up, quick to get into, and, uh, and, every, and it's so understandable. It's so universal in regards to its appeal. So, uh, and it's, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a puzzle-esque, abstract, kind of region-building and, and population-building game. 
Um, I've done a, a review on it. You can go back, but uh, just have a quick look on Board Game Geek. It's awesome. And, and I mean, what a list of games here. Jump Drive, uh, Architects of the West Kingdom. I, that's out of the three, I have fun with that one. That's the worker placement version of, of the trilogy of Architects of the West Kingdom, uh, Paladins of the West Kingdom, and Viscounts of the West Kingdom. And they're all different kind of mechanisms. Paladin's probably the heaviest in regards to the Euroness of it. But uh, cool. Um, Brian, Juicy Fruits, Sushi Go, and The Crew. I've not, I've not played Juicy Fruits. I've heard a lot of people talk about uh, it's a great family game. Sushi Go, probably the, the best introductory game for card drafting you could ever uh, show people. And The Crew is a cooperative trick-taking game. Yeah, I said that. Cooperative trick-taking game. Uh, John... Uh, John of, of TuneCon plays, uh, a, I understand, and he's told me that he plays a regular session of National Pro Hockey, and uh, he states that they started a new season, probably in coordination with the NHL. So, yay, I should uh, get some updates from him every once in a while in regards to how that league is going. So that's fantastic. Um, I myself have uh, had the opportunity last night to play Tyrants of the Underdark, uh, 2016, designed by Peter Lee, Rodney Thompson, and Andrew Veen, uh, published by Gale Force 9, and uh, it is IP of uh, Dungeons and Dragons because you play, that's such a fun game, uh, you play uh, uh, drow elves in the, uh, uh, you know, the, the shadow, uh, the shadow land. Um, <laughs> all the D&D people are like, oh man, come on. Don't, 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 don't wishy-washy. Uh, no, I'm joking. Um, uh, it's such a fun game. So it's not, it's not D&D role-playing. It's that, uh, that thematic uh, realm, I guess, uh, of, of the, well, it says, each player leads a house of drow in a section of the Underdark below the Sword Coast, which is all uh, um, kind of uh, canon in regards to the Dungeons and Dragons uh, world building. And uh, it is, uh, the easiest way to say it, it is a deck building area control uh, game. And there's so much, uh, you know, that idea of take that. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I hate games that have take that where in regards to civilization building and then you go and attack and you bust up somebody's, Sandcastle, right? I don't like that game. This game, though, uh, is is a push-pull, area control, go in, assassinate. Um, the expectation of, of that take that is part of the mechanism of the game. I don't mind that because it's all, you, you can see it. If someone's getting close to you, it's not because they're friendly. <laughs> so the uh, you got to play with your head on a swivel in regards to how things are operating and your ability to, to counter that, or not necessarily counter that, is if someone's going to, uh, you know, place a spy in your area, well, then you just go and, you know, pick a spot in their calm, you know, domain and start to uh, shake, shake and rattle over there and attract attention. Or what happened last night, because we had a great four-player max player game is the rest of the board draws attention to a certain player who is starting to pull away. It's like, wait, 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 wait. There's a lot of growth over there. Shouldn't someone take care of that? 
There was a lot of that going on at the table, which was hilarious and fun at the same time because uh, it was everybody's first player, uh, first play. Uh, it was my it was my pick of the evening, and I picked this. Thank you to Matt Legault from uh, Scorpion Masque. Uh, he came on a hype train episode and hyped this one up, and I it was it had been on my radar, and uh, that was just the the to, you know boop the seal, the wax seal that that made me go and purchase it. But it had been sitting on the shelf of her a while, so uh, this was definitely. When it was my turn to pick a game, it was going to be this one because I knew the group would like it because we love deck building and uh, are big fans of El Grande. And I thought, hmm, what happens if you smash those two together like an Oreo cookie? And it was delicious, I'd say. So if any of that appeals to you, I would go out and purchase. Now, Gale Force 9, um, it's not that it's a second edition. I believe they reprinted it and added... Uh, more factions because you play when you get the get the game ready there are i believe six factions that you can choose from in regards to building the market deck and uh, we started off with the drow and the dragon decks and and each deck has a, a particular uh, influence or approach to the game in regards to how it interacts with your ability to manage, maintain, and interact with the with everything on the map, and uh, we we took the recommended. If this is your first play, choose these two decks, and they were pretty docile because we went. I went back in and looked at what the other decks, uh, um, what their kind of interaction or power was, and woo, you can cause some crazy havoc with some powerful, potent, aggressive decks. So I might have to explore this even more so. Uh, so once again, thank you, Mathieu. This is such a fun game, and it is going to see the table many more times. And I am going to hype this one, continue to hype this one. Um, so yeah, Tyrants of the Underdark, uh, designed by Peter Lee, Rodney Thompson, Andrew Veen, and published by Gale Force 9. Uh, we are at that point where, um, thank you. Thank you so much uh, uh, for taking the time to listen to everything that we have to say about the games we played. And uh, again, the greatest of apologies if you are now uh, um, hitting the <laughs> add to cart. And uh, yeah, I am not responsible for any purchases. That Okay, maybe I'm a little responsible. But uh, yeah, and thank you for the content creators for delivering such a great great games and suggestions and again from my point of view something to spend my money on uh <laughs> but before i head out uh keep your stick on the ice and take care out there eh